everyone. Welcome to Zon in Canada. I am your host, Jesse Betteridge. So today on the show, we are talking about Inuyasha. Uh, I have two guests to help me on what I expect may be a highly emotional journey, uh, at least for some of us in some ways. First, someone who has been on the show before uh, and I've been wanting to bring back, but the opportunity hasn't really come up, uh, Ian Whitcomb. Hi. Uh, my other guest, friend of the show and a regular on the Imus Bionics Facebook group, Noah Carson. Hello, everyone. It's great to be here. Also point out that uh, if you listen to the show and aren't, and aren't part of that Facebook group, uh, you should probably check it out. Uh, but anyway, thanks a lot for, for coming on the show, you guys. You're welcome. Hey, no problem, man. Before we start, uh, I should probably acknowledge uh, that there has been a lot of important news that's been, been cropping up. Uh, it was recently revealed that uh, despite being a licensor for the film in the United States, Funimation actually does not have the theatrical or home video rights to The Boy and the Beast in Canada. Uh, its entire distribution is actually going to be uh, handled by Mongrel Media, and their, its release date is actually going to be in, in May in Canada, whereas it's already begun screening in the United States, uh, which is a very unprecedented situation that's also being grievously underreported. Uh, it seems that a lot of people don't actually know about this because it wasn't actually properly announced by anyone. In fact, if anything, Funimation seems to be holding that information back. Uh, also, Adult Swim launched a new app in Canada that uh, contains nearly their entire library, but it was not made or released with the involvement of Chorus or Adult Swim Canada. And also, despite being uh, set to end for good at the end of February, Teletoon actually made a last-minute decision to keep the Teletoon at Night block going uh, and added a few adult shows back to their lineup, which uh, all these things have very interesting implications that are relevant uh, to this show, uh, but we're actually going to be talking about that stuff more in depth in the next episode, and uh, I am hoping to have that episode up next week. We'll have to see how that goes. But I I'm going to put that off for a little bit. Today, we're doing something that I've been meaning to prioritize for quite a while, which again is a retrospective on Inuyasha as a unique disruptive hit in Canada. This is the first of what I hope will be a series of retrospectives on anime shows that have had a unique cultural impact in this country. Uh, shows that hit in a time and place that arguably caused them to resonate with people here in a way that is distinct from how they resonated in other places. Uh, other shows that would fit this bill include Sailor Moon, Beck Mongolian Chop Squad, uh, the French dubs of uh, Captain Harlock and UFO Grandizer, and obviously Spider Riders as well. Beyblade even. And Beyblade, yeah. Black Lagoon had a good run here, too. It did, yeah. yeah. It, uh, it it stole Death Note's Thunder a little bit, because I think they premiered on the same day. They were premiering, yeah, they were running at the yeah. same time, so... It, it was quite a it was quite a time for fans of uh of Vancouver produced dubs. Conversely, examples of some shows that do not fit this bill are Pokemon, who I, I'd argue whose impact <laughs> Canada was pretty much exactly the same as it was in every other Western nation. And things like Dragon Ball Z and Full Metal Alchemist, whose mainstream success here was basically spillover from their popularity in the United States. Oh yeah. Or even worse off, Cowboy Bebop. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Cowboy Bebop I, I like. I would argue it had no impact here. W in itself, may actually be a topic to talk about. But yes, for this, I am starting with Inuyasha, and this may seem like a strange choice to some of you, as Sailor Moon really seems like the more obvious title to start with, as far as unique cultural impacts in Canada go. And that's not incorrect. Uh, in fact, it uh, it would have been easier to start with Sailor Moon uh, as my first retrospective, as there's no shortage of resources or people who can talk about that show. But I stubbornly insisted on starting with Inuyasha, and a big reason for that is because I wanted to make a point. This series was a major, incomparable hit in this country at a magnitude that I feel many people either downplay or have forgotten entirely. 
so why would I fixate on this? Well, we have to look at one important piece of information. In 2003, Inuyasha, just the, the, the word Inuyasha, was the third highest popular search query on Google in Canada. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is despite the fact that it had only been airing on television for three months at that point. No other anime or even comparable search terms even came close to Inuyasha in that ranking. And it wasn't, and when you compare it to the U.S. rankings, it actually wasn't even the most popular anime search term in the U.S. You know, its high placement in Canada was pretty much unmatched and in many ways inexplicable. In 2004, it was the number one popular search query on Google in Canada. Again, with little sign of anything else similar alongside it in the rankings. Uh, it remained high for the next couple of years as well. And while Naruto also broke into those ranks a few times, nothing was really quite as unique and surprising as Inuyasha's apparent popularity by that metric. Also, by ne- next couple of years, I mean, the show ended in 2006, the YTV run. So that was pretty high for the entire run on YTV. It only lasted three years on the air? Wow. I remember it being longer. It ended in 2006. Okay, well, then there must have been reruns. There were gaps where we were waiting for episodes, so that did extend the run somewhat. Uh, Also, it did rerun for for at least a good year after it finished as well. When we reached that point, uh, a lot of people's opinions had changed of the show. But just to start out, uh, I I think we're going to kind of focus on our own experiences with the show, which I think are going to be associated more with... Uh, the impact it had when it first started. Uh, I, I know a lot of people will find it surprising to learn that it was ranking so high in Google. Uh, but I think, you know, if we each kind of share our own experiences and connection to the show, uh, it may clarify this a little bit, or how the way many people in Canada felt about the show. You know, obviously we're, we're, we're super nerds when it comes to this kind of thing. But I, I think this general sentiment that we have is is, is pretty common. Um, so let's kind of share our own kind of connection, how we discovered the show. I know for all of us, it started on, on what, with the YTV broadcast. But uh, but Ian, can you kind of kind of share your uh, your connection to, to Inuyasha? I'm just going to be even more specific. Uh, the first time I heard of Inuyasha coming to Canada was on the Zanin Canada website in August 2003. Yeah, I didn't break. I didn't break the story though. That no. was uh, Lee Lola. But... Yeah, but that was specific. And your website premiered in July 2003, I believe. Yeah. So you basically wrote the the manifesto, shall we say, about there's been no nearly uncut anime on YTV since Gundam Wing, and you championed pretty hard that Gundam Wing was a failure. It's not something I was conscious of at the time, but. It made, lo- it made a lot of sense. It made sense that we didn't get G Gundam, that they didn't even try with... There were some shows like, it's not really YTV's ballpark, Big O or yeah. Outlaw Star, but yeah. I was surprised by the lack of G Gundam. I feel that the Blue, wa- well, the Blue Water dub of Dragon Ball came the same year. It, it premiered so. the same week as you knew, yes, yeah, I believe. I, I Also, I should clarify, I think the word failure might be, in retrospect, a little strong for... For how for for how Gundam Wing uh, uh, actually did on on YTV, I think my my obviously my opinions were quite strong of it on that. At the I time. think, but I think but it was a it was a missed opportunity. It's more of a failed experiment. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think Endless Waltz was more popular than Gundam Wing, just based on the airings and Endless Waltz was uncut. <laughs> Gundam Wing wasn't. Endless Waltz ran all the time. People more interested in that movie, so more people remember it. Yeah. So yeah, I 
I saw the press release. Basically, I had the same feeling that of anticipation as I did with Gundam Wing and later with Witch Hunter Robin in that this is like a drop in the desert in terms of anime. I don't like I don't care what the content was. It was just like we're getting we're getting nearly uncut anime because we didn't know then if it was going to be if it was going to have the tsunami edits or not. And I don't care what the subject matter is. I don't care what the content is. Clearly, it's being aired aired in prime time on Fridays at ten. And I I was curious. I was just so curious. I felt the same way about Gundam Wing, and I felt the same way about Witch Hunter Robin. They all represented like a. A, a huge turning point. Yeah. Uh, it, it, in some way, they differed greatly from everything that preceded them, uh, both on YTV and just in television in general. In term, when the first two episodes aired, YTV made, in hindsight, a kind of brilliant decision to air them back to back. One at two episodes a week every Friday night, um, which helped a lot the storytelling of that show and just giving the audience something extra every week. Especially when a lot of those early episodes were like basically two-parters. Yeah. Like I, if they split a two-parter, if a week kind of split a two-part, I wouldn't mind because we got two stories a week. I think Inuyasha is tricky in that it's not enough story for one, once a week, but you don't want to put, don't want to strip it five days a week and, and get people invested in it that way. Because then you just ramp up with plot and character and people would not understand. And the first 26 or so episodes of Inuyasha are such a slow build that two episodes a week was kind of perfect in hindsight. Yeah, I agree. It definitely, it definitely gave you the perfect dose of, uh, of what the show had to offer, at least definitely in, those first, uh, in that first chunk. So basically, it, and this is in hindsight and rewatching the episodes, when I saw it in 2003, I thought... Okay, this is this is good. This is good stuff. This is um, this is Escaflone meets what I know of Rana One and a Half meets a little bit of of OAV type medieval fantasy stuff, mm-hmm. and it was good. When I rewatched it, I had so much more years of experience watching anime anime first episodes. I has I don't call them pilots, but the first two episodes of Inuyasha are really great. They really are. There's the tone is really specific. They play like comedy. They play like good comedy, and they don't bog down exposition or annoying character interactions. And one thing I find, one thing I found in those first two episodes, I think they had a clear idea of who Kagome was in terms of being a reliable, independent heroine that I think the show just kind of wasted. It's total character decay. And in those first two episodes, you actually have a well-rounded character. And it's, re- it's, re- it's really something special, I think. So, Noah, just as far as, like, just personal experience, uh, I mean, is there anything you, you, can, you can kind of focus on or, or articulate about that? Well, personally speaking, I was nine when Inuyasha first aired. Yeah. So I was coming off of, like, Kitty Fair, like Transformers Armada and Digimon <laughs> as an anime fan. So yeah, it was like the first real mature or teen anime that I was exposed to. So you're like, you're thinking, wow, this is a show with like dark themes, blood. There was, this is kind of an embarrassing personal story, but I was actually amazed that they showed Kagome sort of swimming 
in the nude, so to speak. I mean, they didn't show anything, but it was still like this was almost uncut anime, and I hadn't been exposed to that. It just felt like they weren't pulling any punches. Yeah, they weren't the talking yeah. down. Yeah, I also, mean, compare it. it to... Yeah, and also in Japan too, for for a broad audience to be adapted this way too, in terms of the fan service in the first twenty six episodes, it's actually <laughs> and a sunrise show too. Yeah, like there's the there's like crossings now, whatever, but for the otaku, but this was a primetime show in Japan too, and and the fan service didn't make itself noticed. Well, of course, it is, you know, following up shows like Ranma One Half as well, where <laughs> just fan service, fan service everywhere. Some may, some may even argue it was more naturalized nudity in that case, but oh, yeah. you know, still, you know, still kind of in the same same ballpark. Yeah. And I mean, another thing that was impactful about Inuyasha for me was that there was actual romance in it. Like, I hadn't seen that since Sailor Moon, which was actually my first exposure to anime as a whole. And I'll admit, I'm kind of a, help, uh, I'm kind of a sucker for romantic stories. So That actually ties into something I noticed about the show, Noah. In terms of romance, you have a lot of anime where it's totally dramatic, and the romances are basically taken for granted. They're developed, but you take it for granted as serious drama or melodrama. So the Gundam franchises, even in Western shows like Young Justice or Avatar, the romances are played are played straightforward, dramatic. Inuyasha tries to walk this tightrope, and I don't think it succeeds at it entirely, but it tries to add comedic to add comedic relief to the romance, which is a really yeah. tight which is a really tight tightrope, and it's something that. Again, going to the legacy of Rumiko Takahashi, for sure, but only really great writers can pull that off. And I'd say that Inuyasha only only succeeded at thirty percent of the time, but but it tried. It tried to punch up the romance as comedy, and that's something really difficult and really kind of mature. It's it's interesting that you you try to qualify that as success because so, some might argue that that's <laughs> very much a part of. Uh, Rumiko Takahashi's uh, um, formulas uh, that 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 make her stories addictive to so many people. I'd say the attempt, the attempt yeah. to make it comedic is is like a. It doesn't quite succeed, but the attempt is there. It could. I mean, brought, compared to something like Sailor Moon, which was pretty much all melodrama when it came to romance, and it was I refreshing. Think, yeah, yeah, and I think Sailor Moon is more palpable for more for anime fans. People people enjoy Mamoru, Mamoru and Usagi's relationship much more than Inuyasha and Kagome's relationship. And Inuyasha and Kagome, they did episodes that they tried to go for a Sam and Diane vibe. And I think my favorite episode of Inuyasha is um, Two Minds, One Heart, which is basically which is basically Kagome returns to to her to her world. Um, it comes after some dramatics it's both kagome and inuyasha coming to terms about how to apologize um we have and we have shippo and kaede kind of playing matchmakers and and relationship consultants and there's this there's this great moment where where shippo makes these crayon drawings of Inuyasha and Kagome's relationship, and it's just—it's just, it's just <laughs> yeah. so. It's really rare. It's really rare for an anime that I totally, I totally get what 
page the writer's on in terms of a relationship. Like, I'm watching that episode, I totally feel that the writers know exactly what kind of relationship this is. And that's a rare thing. And Inuyasha was, I would say, hardly ever successful with that. But in that, in terms of that one episode, it was. I'm trying to find a segue to giving my own experiences, but I feel like I'm retreating on uh, on what was said. Well, what did you know about Takahashi? You're a big Maison Ikoku fan, so... Yes, I was, uh, I w- I was quite keen on Maison Ikoku. If I recall, I was actually collecting the, the, the volumes before. I think before Inuyasha had actually started, I still think it's it's her strongest work that that I I've read uh, personally. I I still haven't read a lot of her uh, her earlier one shot stuff or the Mermaid Scar or OVA or, or or those things. I'm still interested in checking those out. Yeah, M- Maisani Koku uh, was uh, was was a big thing for me when it when Viz started re releasing those uh, those individual volumes and going back even further, Ranma one half. When I first heard about that show quite a few years ago, back in the the anti gravity room days, when my awareness of anime was just growing and my exposure to it was mostly limited to what was in the back of of uh, Electronic Gaming Monthly magazines, uh, where they'd always advertise those anime import things. Oh wow! I mean the the idea that that this show that is like just filled with with nudity and themes like like gender bending was, was like this big mainstream thing in Japan. Uh, I mean, that blew my mind. I was endlessly fascinated by it. It was actually, I think, just before Inuyasha started that I actually started renting the tapes uh, from from a local video store. After about 13 episodes, I realized that it was not actually worth my time to watch uh, because about 13 episodes of that show was really all you needed. <laughs> um, kind of coming off the coattails of that. I, I mean, of course, I was just interested in less localized anime airing um, uh, on, on YTV. And, you know, as Ian set up, the show came about three years after Gundam Wing, when there was no shows like that uh, airing in the intervening time. And, you know, of course, I started Zon in Canada at the time when I was in high school, which should tell you a lot about what I was like when I was in high school. Uh, <laughs> I, I know the idea of not having anime on television uh, doesn't seem significant these days, but you have to remember that back then, having something on television was very substantial. I mean, there was no legal streaming dvds were expensive and hard to come by online video was terrible yeah, I, exactly uh downloading a show like inuyasha was was unwieldy uh <laughs> and, and even then not not everyone you know could access fan subs or anything like that and even then i mean chances are if you wanted to re- even record something that was on television i mean you were doing it on a vcr rather than a pvr so actually catching something live on television was was a big deal and I know that Ian used the comparison of a, of a drop of water in the desert. Uh, I remember when the news first broke that YTV was going to air the series. Uh, now, I, I was only three years old when the Berlin Wall came down. So I don't re- actually remember what that was like. But I imagine that my personal reaction to Inuyasha airing on television was, was somewhat comparable to how the public felt about that. Um, and Takahashi was something that I was already starting to be fa- fairly somewhat versed in, uh, having, you know, started reading Maison Ikoku and, uh, and, and watching a bit of Rama one half. So this was unfolding as sort of my personal continuity, which, you know, was, was, was pretty important to me. And Inuyasha was something I was particularly curious about. It's, it seemed like it had a lot of, a lot of potential. You know, as I said on the first episode as well, like the moment in 2003 when the show premiered, and I saw the Japanese opening start playing for the first time on YTV. That was probably one of the most satisfying moments of my life up to that point, uh, which, again, says a lot about what I was like in high school. Um, and it, it's also a shame that that first opening theme doesn't seem to be in any uh, most of the legal versions of Inuyashi, if I know. If you watch it on Netflix, all the themes are intact except for that first opening. 
because I mean those are those are some pretty uh, pretty expensive songs as I understand. So yeah. I guess why uh, Viz wasn't able to to get that. And the adults, the recent Adult Swim re-airings also don't have that first opening as well. I can live with it. I mean, I really can't live with like Zeta Gundam just because the open the songs in Zeta Gundam are the best thing about the show. Uh, agreed. Agreed yeah. on that. <laughs> Flat out. Uh, it, has, it has its moments, but the the openings are the most notable thing. And I wonder if Neil Sedaka ever recorded the second opening to Zeta Gundam if that would have been a chart topping single in the U.S. Because I think it could have the potential to be. I love um, that song. But um, I'm comfortable. I'm okay with the Netflix. Kao Wada wrote a really memorable theme to Inuyasha, so it's not like it's not like the Zeta instrumental yep. opening. It's clearly the main theme to Inuyasha. It's u- it's used everywhere. It's recognizable. It almost fits the animation. Almost. I don't think it fits the animation any worse or better than the original song. Yeah, it it, it represents a pretty strong score that the song did. Uh, that, yeah. that the show had as well. Yeah. Um, and, and like you know, we'll probably get into this a little more later. But you, you have to understand that the theme songs in Inuyasha were all like major; they were major pop hits in Japan. They weren't just anime theme songs. Like the production committee of of Inuyasha had access to like the 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 biggest songs in Japan. And on that note, I still love the first ending theme. And I, oh yeah, whenever I listen to it, I always remember the exact moment when YTV would cut an ad uh, into the crowd. Oh 15 God. Seconds. They stopped doing that, though. It took a while. Also, if you watch the 1 a.m. re-airings, they, they didn't run an ad during it at that point. Actually, I honestly think that running the ad in the ending theme kind of made the ending theme more tantalizing. Yeah, yeah you could. That's a, that's, a, that's a good argument, actually. Yeah. So you'd go to the 1 a.m. airing. You'd go to, you'd go to pre-YouTube or whatever. No, Toonami Arsenal. <laughs> yeah. Toonami. <laughs> Toonami but, Arsenal and ASF. Yes. Yeah. Um, one unfortunate thing, though, is that the director of the series, Masashi Ikeda, who also directed Gundam Wing, he left the, he left the show around episode 52 or so. Yeah. His opening credits and ending credits are usually phenomenal. I love the Gundam Wing opening. The He also, he also would have done the first opening to Niyasha and the two endings for Niyasha. Um I don't know what he was thinking with the ending to Gundam Wing. You can kind of see that, okay, he likes he likes one character high, highlighted in an ending theme sequence, but he did that much better off in Inuyasha than he did with Rubina going on Safari. It was an odd choice, but you could also argue that it was the one bit of levity in a show that, had mostly no humor, that was mostly humorless. Yeah. Yeah. You also had the same writer from Gundam Wing, Katsuyuki Sumizawa, write Inuyasha. So I just encourage everyone to check this guy's Anime News Network page. So he did Gundam Wing. He worked on several for Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball Z. He story edits Inuyasha. At the same time, he would have worked on Naruto and Inuyasha as story editor at the same time. He was do- he was writing some of their movies too. Yeah, In- Inuyasha did go on hiatus in Japan uh, in a few periods, so that might that might account for that in some cases. Yeah, but it's interesting how one person. Uh, I-, I mean, this goes also goes back to the fact that many of the many of the early less localized anime that aired on YTV were all Sunrise productions, um, which kind of kind of resulted in a in a in a bit of an odd uh, uh, in a, in an odd continuity. Uh, between between these shows and a lot of the well, the first Bionics, the first Bionics schedule, Gund- Gundam Seed, Inuyasha, Witch Hunter Robin. Mm-hmm. Although 
none of those three share the same animation department. Yeah. Because Sunrise is divided up into, I think, at least 15 studios. Mm-hmm. And apparently Inuyasha was done by Sun- Sunrise One. That's the studio that started all in 1975. You can't even say this was the top quality studio because it all... You see the best Sunrise shows in, in very different... Uh, from very different groups. Though another thing is that in Yasha's production committee, you see some major, major players in there. You see not only Yomuri Television, but you also see MTV as well. And when you have those two, you can guarantee a nice, healthy budget. In the particular case of Inuyasha, just you know, going going along the idea of the of the Japanese context of the show, uh, it's important to remember how much of an institution Rumiko Takahashi is, and the majority of her work has been published and shown in Sunday Magazine. And you know, while that particular magazine has been around since the fifties, her work has really been the cornerstone of the magazine's identity in a lot of ways. If you associate anything with that particular publication, her work like Urusa Yatsura, Rama One Half, and more recently Rene are probably the first titles that are going to come to your mind. This is just sort of my own perception, so I mean, f- feel free to correct me if you disagree. But from my observations, I feel that her work has established something of a bit of, an, of, a, of, a, of a house style for Shonen Sunday titles. Uh, obviously, they all have their own unique aesthetics, but... You know, many of the titles in the magazine very frequently, I find, not all of them, but a lot of them, have traits that bear a lot of strong similarities to, ha- to Takahashi's art. It's kind of hard to put my finger on. I find a lot of the time in the titles you'll have a few prominent characters who have, like, you know, large distinct pupils, while many other characters have consistently distinctly small pupils. Um, I mean, when you look at the, the Case Closed or Detective Conan, um, I, I, I personally find that you can see ways that it conforms to Takahashi's aesthetic, and oftentimes that, that feels like an editorial mandate, from my perspective. And you can even see it in something recent like Dagashikashi. When I first saw the key art for Dagashikashi, I, I could instantly tell by looking at it that it was based off of a Shonen Sunday ma- uh, manga. Well, I think it's interesting that Detective Conan and um, Inuyasha in Japan aired, aired one against the other. Yeah. So they wanted to keep that Shonen Sunday brand no matter what. Exactly. And the TV shows based on her work, you know, continue to be a mainstay on Japanese television, even with shows that even recent shows that fall under her brand, like Rene, are like the some of the only shows that are guaranteed to get an early evening primetime slot uh, where, you know, today in an age where even most shonen jump stuff winds up late at night. Well, it definitely speaks to her pedigree in that case as one of their biggest creators. Well, the legacy, too. I mean, and Urusei Yatsura is kind of influenced also by a very by a very notable anime in terms of the staff who worked on it, but the, it's basically the legacy of anime in the 80s in terms of in terms of mainstream. Some people use the derogatory term sitcoms when referring to when referring to Urusei Yatsura and Meisoni Koku, but it's kind of like the Cheers and the Seinfeld of of anime in the 80s. It's interesting because, I mean, those titles are very different in a way, but, yeah. you know, when you break them down, they both follow distinct formulas that have some commonalities, but, I mean, they're all, they're, they're ultimately formulaic titles, and, yeah. I mean, that that's like I kind of alluded to before, that's that's sort of what Takahashi does. She does. is able to, you know, fine-tune these addictive formulas that allow for titles that'll have very long runs, 
remain addictive to a sustainably large audience while keeping actual story and character art progression to an absolute minimum uh in a lot of cases like even in even in Maison Ikoku, which I would say is probably one of her strongest, most concise stories. I mean, there's so much beating around the bush in that. And, that, and that's really how the series sustains itself for most of its run. Well, how many mangaka even use formulas, even, even self-consciously use formulas? A lot, of manga, a lot of storytelling in manga tends to be what kind of weird thing can happen next, or at least, it, or at least that's how it is currently. Um, there's, no, there's no safety nets in place for for some formula and Takahashi seems to have seems to have capitalized on it that's the interesting thing about Inuyasha's story is that when you break it down it's such a weird hodgepodge of ideas that don't really fit together it is um and at least initially it uh it it you know a a lot of its appeal is that it's is in its unpredictability because it it uses so many disparate elements. You don't really know what's coming a lot of the time. Just to give a quick summary of what Inuyasha is about, uh, the sen- secondary main character, Kagomi Higurashi, is a high school student li- who lives with her mother and maternal grandfather at an ancient shrine in Tokyo. On the day of her 15th birthday, which, as far as I can tell, was of no significance to the storyline, uh, she finds herself inexplicably pulled into a well outside of her shrine by a centipede demon. She evades the centipede's clutches, but then through the well finds herself transported to the feudal era of Japan, which is in the late 1400s. There she finds a white-haired boy with dog ears who is unconscious and pinned to a tree by an arrow. Her presence seems to awaken him, and then uh, she gets attacked by the centipede again, and then sets him free so that he can defeat the centipede demon. This sets off a series of interesting revelations. The brash and crude dog boy, whose name is Inuyasha, is in fact a half-demon, and was was pinned to the tree 50 years prior by a priestess named Kikyo, uh, after he was apparently trying to steal an artifact that she was guarding known as the Shikon Jewel. Uh, so the Shikon Jewel is a crystallization of the four souls of Shinto philosophy, and uh, is able to grant immense power to whomever possesses it. Inuyasha intended to use the jewel to become a full demon, uh, which led to a confrontation that resulted in Kikyo's death. In order to carry out her duty as guardian of the Shikon Jewel, Kikyo requested that the jewel itself be burned along with her body. And we soon learn that Kagome is in fact the reincarnation of Kikyo, uh, and was carrying the Shikon Jewel physically inside of her body. Uh, and as a result of that, is now attracting demons. The, the jewel is removed from her body, and almost as quickly as we learn of its significance, it is shattered into an unspecified number of pieces, uh, which our unlikely duo now has to search for. So after the premise is established, we, we spend some time exploring this version of feudal Japan, uh, which Kagome is able to freely transport to and from through the well outside of her shrine, and her time-jumping rarely seems to have any actual consequence. Um, apart from the fact that the time that she's gone in the past, uh, seems to represent time that passes in the future. I don't think this is ever really explained or justified. Uh, yeah, I think it works good. I like, I like that. I like that. I like that she doesn't go back immediately after. I don't know. I like, I like the fact that time passes for her in the present as it does in the past. I know it threw me for a loop when I was first watching the show. I was expecting her to either be, be trapped in this alternate world, like Escaflone style, or... You know, there's going to be some kind of change or consequence we're going in the past. Um, it, the show doesn't certainly doesn't concern itself with uh, with time travel. With time travel. Uh, but anyway, it's not long before we are uh, we first hear of uh, Naraku, who is the main villain of the series, and uh, he complicates 
what uh, has been established uh, in these first few episodes, to say the least. Uh, we learn that the confrontation between Inuyasha and Kikyo was in fact set up by Naraku, who personated uh, both of them uh, in an effort to turn the two of them against each other uh, so that so that he himself could obtain the Shikon Jewel for his own purposes. And as we learn later, the purpose of his entire existence is simply to gain the Shikon Jewel's power. He's one of those stereotypical villains. And from here on out, most of the meteor portions of the storyline focus on the nature of his relationship that he, uh, the relationship he shared with Kikyo, and the increasingly convoluted details of his existence. I had no idea or recollection that Iraq was specifically created to to co- gain conquest of the jewel. Well, the the idea, the idea, as I understand it, was, uh, and maybe I've forgotten these details, but uh, Muso, who was, you know, the the deformed man who had the relationship with Kikyo and yeah he summoned all of those demons to sort of create a new body for him so that he could you know so 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 that basically he could he could live um and the in exchange he promised that he would give all of these collect this collective demon entity the Shikon jewel which Kikyo with the woman he loved possessed but it basically got out of control to the point that this demon collective uh, overtook his body and pretty much specifically yearned for the jewel. There are certainly more details to it than that, but I think when you boil it down, that's pretty much what it all comes down to. Noah, I, I don't know if you can uh, if you can elaborate on that. You know what? I had completely forgotten about most of Naraku's plot details over the years. Which demonstrates what a compelling villain he really is, the fact that <laughs> neither of us can really have a, articulate yeah. his objectives. He's certainly no Frieza, that's for sure. He's nowhere near as memorable. And again, talking about secondary players, like, of course, you had Naraku and Sango. I'm Sorry if I'm butchering their names. It's been a while. <laughs> um, and they were sort of like the secondary couple. They were... They also had secondary a romance, couple. but it... Yeah, it wasn't... It wasn't as, you know, central as it was, like... The focus was on, romance-wise, Inuyasha and Kagome's budding relationship. They were, well, yeah, the bickering sort of old married couple, even though I don't think they got married until the end. Like, the actual end of the manga. And I think I also appreciate those two characters because, again, it doesn't go for the straight melodramatic anime relationship. It still, it still has that comedic spark to it. And unfortunately, though, there are recurring gags in Yasha, and at 167 episodes, no one can keep them fresh. So, <laughs> Roku is a lecherous pervert, and. That's one of the things that makes Inuyasha su- such an oasis on white TV. You have you have a character who's a lecherous pervert. It's uncensored. You see, you usually see him grab grab the maiden's rear ends. I mean, there was that editing brief editing phase of white TV. <laughs> yeah, they they were editing that for a good portion of the show, which it was it was inter- it was sort of interesting that they fixated on that specifically uh, in, in Inuyasha. Yeah. So. That's a recurring gag. Um, there is a domesticity gag involving Inuyasha and Kagome. When I Sit saw, boy. yeah, when that, I saw that, that, that first, gag. when I saw that first gag, I felt a rush of anime osmosis hit me because I was not familiar with harem shows or fan service shows or the, sh- the anime shtick. But when I saw that and I heard those words, I, I was like, okay. I have not seen this before, but I know exactly what this is. I know exactly how this is going to play out. It was like all the, it was like a watershed moment in terms of rote anime humor. That actually reminds me of a point I, I wanted to make. Inuyasha, you know, as far as, as being a, um, 
sort of a breakthrough title for a lot of people. And I, you know, I, I, I think that for many people in Canada, proportionally perhaps more than in the United States and other countries, considering that, that, you know, as we'll get into in a bit, uh, Inuyasha, as I describe it, is, is a disruptive hit. It's kind of like a sampler of some of the most common problems you find in anime in general. Um, that, that actually is an interesting point because a lot of at the time it felt like a revolution, but now a lot of people see it as just another generic example of the shonen tropes in anime. It introduced Canadian audiences to filler before uh, Naruto did. Oh when, God! Don't even get me started. Uh, written by the same guy. That explains so much. In with Inuyasha, it I think that the point where people start to become disenchanted with it is around that you know, late 60s, early 70 kind of point um, that that marks the point not only shortly after the directors changed on the show, um, but also the point where you start to, you know, we start to get introduced to things like Onigumo, the like the 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 major intricacies of Naraku's nature, which, you know, increasingly feel like they're being made up as they go along. And, you know, we start to get the first taste of of uh anime only filler in the show i mean i mean all those things are bad in themselves but they sort of highlight the problems with inuyasha in itself the its unpredictability sort of drive drive your interest of it when it's beginning but it's overly eclectic nature really manifests in a in a in a way that disservices it at at that point in the series i think it's because i i've consistently found that people you know they're they're totally into the show for the for like or what we consider the first broadcast season, the first 52 episodes. And, and it, it remains pretty strong for the, for the first bit of the second season. But you know, it's, it's around that, that, that point in the, in the late sixties that I think people start to start to see through it. To be fair though. And I say this about any sitcom that's episodic or any, anything that's episodic when it comes to filler or stuff like that, your batting average, your batting average is very low to get a good episode. Very low. But Occasionally, you do get a really funny episode. The episode where mm-hmm. where Miyoga the flea and his betrothed, and he starts he starts um, possessing possessing ship. No, he possesses Inuyasha, and Inuyasha tries tries to do it with Shippo. It's just that's a riot, and I'm sure that was better than the Gundam Seed episode that aired before and the Witch Hunter Robin episode that aired. Before. <laughs> You know what? I think I actually remember people making that very comment on that night. Actually, that was I, I remember that it was a yeah, and that's just the benefit of, of episodic story, episodic comedic storytelling. You don't know what you're going to get, and sometimes you can hit it out of the park. The, the filler episodes did, for the most part, get very bad in Inuyasha. Um, which uh, one thing I'll always remember about like the middle of its run is the anticipation that people had for the appearance of the Band of Seven. Uh, which was about like around the uh, little past the halfway mark of the series overall. These characters who are mercenaries who are resurrected by Naraku essentially to distract Inuyasha um, for specific reasons I don't remember. I'm not sure if 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 either of you do. No, I stopped watching Inuyasha in late 2005 just because I was going to university yeah. at the time. So Inuyasha was the first show that I had to I had to cut off. You know what, I, I kind of have to admit, I was such a huge fan of that show that I just, I stuck with it through the filler, through the thick and thin, and mm-hmm. I don't even remember the Band of Seven now that I think oh, about it. 
Well, that that's the whole thing, is that for a lot of people, they marked, they symbolized the end of, like, two years of almost straight filler, or over a year of almost straight filler. And at the end, their role is so inconsequential in the grand scheme of the storyline. If you were doing, like, a like a concise retelling of, of Inuyasha, no question, uh, that entire storyline would probably just be removed entirely. You know, to, to 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 criticize it on that level, maybe perhaps it misses the point of Inuyasha, which is is almost more about wasting time than it is about actually getting to the point of anything. I I think it's probably important to point out that of the three of us, none of us have actually watched uh, Inuyasha: The Final Act. Um, I know how some of the storylines carry out. Now, in particular, I'm I'm interested in where Sashomaru's storyline uh, goes in the final act, and I will say that. In terms of plot progression, Sashomaru, I think, was consistently the most interesting character in Inuyasha. Uh, Sashomaru, of course, being Inuyasha's brother, who is kind of tied to discovering and exploiting weird technicalities that pop up in the storyline. I I found to be pretty good at mixing things up most of the time. And also walking the line between villain and anti-hero all the time. Which no doubt fueled his popularity. (laughs) And Uh, his screen time was limited enough just so that every appearance he was still written sharply as a character be it with his comedic compadres or just with him and and Inuyasha, he was always written sharply towards at least the very end of me watching the show. So he benefited from the lack of constant focus. Noah, did you have any other comments on sort of any notable story aspects of Inuyasha in general? Not really, no. Yeah, it, you really get burned out by it after a certain point. I mean, I can, it's funny, I can remember specific episodes, but not story arcs. Okay, that makes sense, because that's how I recognize it, too. Especially in, in the 2003-2004 year, I definitely remember episodes more than arcs. So, do you have favorite episodes? One of my favorite episodes was always the one where they helped the spirit of the girl who died yes. in the fire. Yes. That was one of my Yeah, favorites. that was a good one. Yeah. That was my favorite for the longest time. I think there's a couple episodes that are better, but yeah, that's a really great episode. I mean, it's one of the first times you cry in an anime, and that's just kind of significant for you. Oh, yeah, you were nine at the time. Yeah! <laughs> that would I, and I thought, and I thought Pokemon the first movie was bad. I still cry at that scene. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was probably too jaded and cynical even then to cry at it. I mean, I'll defend, I'll defend Ocean Dubs, I always will, but I'm not going to get seriously invested in an episode, not going to get emotional to an episode like that with, with an Ocean Dub, but, but whatever. It is a great episode. Keep in and mind, I, you know, they aired at 10 p.m. in Toronto. I was watching these at midnight, so I'm sitting there oh, in front wow. of my TV, just bawling my eyes out at midnight. My mom was like, what's going on? What's wrong? Oh, and the episode before then is also really creepy. It also takes place in the present time. This this enormous this enormous demon goes around sucking sucking random Japanese people. And at the end of the episode, we don't see the people come back. Oh, now I'm starting to get flashbacks. Oh, god! We don't see the, the people come back. Like <laughs> anime isn't consistent about that. It would be something that would be cut. It would be something that. Uh, TVY7 dub would have tried to change. So that's really, that was really unique. Another, just kind of going back to how the show was uh, significant from a, from the Canadian perspective, 
we have to remember that in the United States, the show was airing on Adult Swim uh, and had already had things like Cowboy Bebop as precedent. So pe- people weren't generally looking at it as a family show or a kid show uh, or a show in just a youth programming context. It was it was viewed as, you know, ostensibly something targeting adults, something that was commercially being targeted at adults. Uh, whereas in Canada, of course, it was airing on a youth network. And while, you know, YTV had a precedent for airing things like, you know, Daria, Stressed Eric, or even things like The Oddities, even though that was that was late British at night. British sitcoms. British sitcoms. It, it was very much sort of in the context of youth programming on, on YTV. It was, it was targeted at a 12 to 17 audience, but it was among youth programming. And even... Uh, you know, shortly after Bionic started, they began ra- running the show at, uh, they briefly ran the show at 8.30 p.m., which was before, um, which was before Watershed, uh, which uh, actually, I know you asked for favorite episodes. Uh, it's, it's hard for me to sort of pinpoint on one, but I always like to go back to the uh, Year of the Demon Hair two-parter, I think was one that always stuck with me because, you know, you have this this sort of busty, attractive uh, villain who, you know, in most localized shows, even just her costume would probably be toned down in some way. And it, it was one of the first storylines in Inuyasha where, you know, you, you get to see actual fairly graphic violence playing out, uh, and especially the scene when Inuyasha sort of drives his hand right through her chest. Uh, for me, that sort of characterized how Inuyasha stood out from the other shows it was airing with, uh, you know, when it initially started back before Bionics. And uh, you know, that's always the arc that sort of comes to mind for me. Uh, those September, October, November 2003 episodes, they're so vivid in my in my mind. Yeah. yeah like, you have the Shomaru two-parter, you have Yaf going when she first go, goes home, you were introduced to Moroku and Sango. Sango's backstory is legitimately tragic, and it's just, it is told by violence told by violence it's told by her brother getting possessed by naraku or one of naraku's agents and killing killing indiscriminately in preparing for this episode i i only went back and rewatched about 20 episodes and you know i i i was kind of dreading it but i actually you know quite enjoyed going back and, and re-exploring it because as i as i kind of ended as i kind of indicated before i mean i have a really strong nostalgic connection specifically with those episodes and they they really encapsulate my own positive experience with the show just because that you know those initial few months when it was airing on ytv were so significant to me personally and again it's that's sort of why it's important to focus on the time and place that ytv aired and how that context made its impact in canada like really unique i don't know i'm not sure if you guys agree with my phrasing that Inuyasha was a disruptive hit on YTV, but when I say that, I mean it was a game changer in a way that I think not even fans like us anticipated that it would be. When you when you actually go back and look at you know the way it aired, YTV was clearly unprepared for the success that the show saw. You know, just just to sort of set the set the the time, you need to remember that Canadian stations like YTV have always focused on acquisitions as their bread and butter. So shows that they acquire from other countries or even just other outside sources rather than their own original productions. Unlike American networks, which usually focus on their original productions, stations like YTV, even even major Canadian broadcasters like YTV, their their primary focus is on acquisitions. And back in 2003, it was considered still considered standard and even acceptable 
for an American cable show or a foreign cable show to take, you know, between four to six months to hit the airwaves in Canada. So generally, YTV knew well in advance what shows were going to be successful. Uh, and, you know, they, they would prepare their marketing strategies and broadcast strategies around that. And, you know, for the most part, that usually came to pass. They knew exactly what was going to hit and what may not hit as hard. Inuyasha was really a different beast entirely, since they didn't have a really comparable context for the, the U.S. broadcast to draw from. It aired in states. It aired later at night on an adult block. So it was likely more difficult for them to anticipate how it was really going to go over. Putting it at 10 p.m. on Friday nights was, in retrospect, a brilliant move. But in reality, I think it was really more of a shot in the dark. Um, and you can really tell because Inuyasha had no promotion initially when it aired. Um, you may even remember that during the bumper sequences before the show, the announcer actually completely mispronounced uh, the name of Inuyasha. It was pronounced Inuyasha for oh, I remember a good those. six, seven months. Yeah. Uh. But it wasn't long before, it, you know, the success was starting to show. Um, I mean, just from my own personal experience, uh, it was the first instance for me where I could just kind of randomly ask acquaintances at you know, school or my karate class or, you know, the social outlets I had at the time, like, have you seen Inuyasha? Have you seen, like, this fairly authentic, comparatively unlocalized anime series? And the answer more often than not was yes. People had, and people were really into it. And, I mean, that had never really happened before with, with a show like this. And the show didn't seem like a big deal on the surface, in the context of YTV's promotions and, and broadcasting and everything, it didn't it didn't seem like a significant thing. But to people in my social circles, it was a very big thing. And it was also a very big thing to people in other social circles, clearly, because, you know, after Inuyasha's premiere, most of the major anime conventions the, the following year uh, grew significantly in attendance. Um, that was definitely the case for, for Anime North in Toronto and, and Anime Evolution in Vancouver at the time. It wasn't long before YTV was confirming yes this was Inuyasha was our top 12 to 17 show by a significant margin it was based on that success alone that the that the bionics block was created you know you really i really get the feeling that 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 none of this was really anticipated in any way it really shook things up in a way that i don't think you really saw very often on uh on acquired content on on canadian networks yeah like buffy was a notable acquisition to right to me but there were no other comparable comparative shows that that they could have programmed it around or anything like that. They couldn't create a block with that. Well, a few years... Uh, remember, a couple years before, they did attempt to, to create the, the Limbo block, oh. uh, which was their first attempt at uh, at targeting 12 to 17 viewers. I don't know if anybody remembers that specifically, but it was a pretty strong example of how not to target a 12 to 17 audience. They had Downtown. They had... I think Dario was airing in there at the time. They had a, a couple of British shows... It, but it, there was no consistency. There was no sort of focus. To be fair, though, I don't know if the first the first year of the Bionics block had the best flow either in terms of consistency. They're all Sunrise shows, but I think I think the mix of Gundam Seed, Inuyasha, and Witch Hunter Robin works well in some aspects, but not in others. And then you had a show like Justice League Unlimited at the same uh, time. Justice League Unlimited works well with Gundam Seed. Well, yeah. I think Inuyasha really needed... It was best when it was on a special night, two episodes. 
when there was a specific time set for Inuyasha. Because sandwiching it back to back between the other anime, it kind of turned the show into white noise. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. It really wasn't long before people sort of started to turn on Inuyasha, or at least many of the, the vocal fans online did. Obviously, viewers didn't, because YTV kept it going for a fairly long time, so it obviously was doing well. But, yeah, the, like like definitely the strongest time was before Bionics, when you had sort of this surprising show airing in a, a you know, sort of family-youth context, uh, or, you know, before having... They had specific 12 to 17 branding. It felt in a way out of place, but looking back, it kind of, it kind of fit with what YTV was doing uh, at the time in, in a weird way. It's that contrast where we, where we kind of see sort of where the, the cultural significance of the show lies in Canada. Because, I mean, if you, were look, if you were going to find a vague cultural equivalent to Inuyasha in this country or in the United States, it would be Cowboy Bebop, since, you know, it's the first in a series of of comparatively mature anime shows that aired in, you know, a minimally censored state I don't... in a widely seen, in a widely seen time slot that served as sort of a gateway for many people. Um, but obviously Inuyasha is a very different show from Cowboy Bebop. I, yeah. I think Inuyasha was, was more important to Canada than Cowboy Bebop was to the U S just because, just because big O outlaw star and Trigon are fairly similar and, you're looking at you're looking at a bunch of shows lumped in there on Cartoon Network versus there was only Inuyasha. That's it. For there was nothing like nothing else like it at the time. No, and it it's down to the roots of that show. It's down to thematically and visually. There's there was nothing like Inuyasha at the time. Like Cowboy Bebop does have, even though it's a masterpiece, does have to contend with the fact that. It's part of an informal grouping with Outlaw Star and Trigon. It has to deal with that. Even if we, even if we hold in high esteem, that that's part of the legacy of the show. Oh, that actually brings me to a question I had. Do you think it's possible for another hit like Inuyasha to even happen here? Because it it's starting to seem, you know, something like Attack on Titan will inevitably show up somewhere on Canadian oh, TV. Oh, good luck. Um, I think Attack on Titan would be like a Gundam seed or something like that. It's it's already too recognized. Yeah, well, it would be riding off of its pre-established yeah. popularity. But, I mean, I have a hard time thinking of something that could sort of hit in that weird, disruptive, unexpected context the way that Inuyasha the title could. For Inuyasha or, sorry, is, the way Inuyasha yeah, did. The title for Inuyasha is a Japanese word. It's a Japanese compound word. I mean, it's, yeah. not, even, it's not in English. That, that's, that's huge. It's, it's kind of amazing when, when we're thinking about this. Like, Cowboy Bebop and Attack on Titan just aren't aren't really the same they're not and we're talking about a show which, which legacy revolves around a manga cop yeah having said all that haiku haiku i i'm still of the opinion that i i think i think free could work on ytv if they wanted to get back into 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 it anime get more of the pre-established fan base it yeah. does they um, would get all the 12 I, to 17 females then yeah yeah but big market again you're talking about a show where where probably a number of people know what the key art is. Is Haikyuu even being uh, dubbed, though? I think, I think that's one. That, I think that one's being put out sub only, isn't it? It would have to, but something like that. Some, because Viz Media, in terms of um, anime in two thousand two, two thousand three, they weren't a major player. It would be like Sentai now putting out a show, and that's one way to look at it too. Like 
There was Bandai and Pioneer back then, but Inuyasha was sort of a biz thing, so it had less, even less traction than a, a hyped-up show from like the anime on DVD crowd or something like that. Yeah, I think now that, now that you mention it, something like Haikyuu theoretically could uh, could have the same kind of effect. But you know, it's such a it's it, we're talking about a market where stations seem to think that even airing something like Dragon Ball Z Kai is a huge risk, yeah. even though it has a huge pre-established following and you know precedent to point to with its performance in the in the U.S. right now on two different networks, no less. And that, that's another thing. I think the state of Canadian television and Canadian youth television, especially is not in a very good place for something like Inuyasha to happen again right now. I'm not saying it couldn't, but looking at modern anime and how a lot there aren't a lot of Canadian dubs being done anymore, which was, again, another thing that got Inuyasha on the air is that it had a Canadian dub. And another reason why they could ru- like run into the ground so <laughs> exactly. much and, and, and probably get that initial weeknight airing to be uh, that 8.30 p.m. Pre, uh, pre-watershed area. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I just think the best chance we have now of something like that would be like Sailor Moon Crystal, which Viz has said on Twitter in that one tweet, hey, we were kind of hoping YTV might notice us, but I don't, <laughs> I, I unfortunately don't see it happening. And it's such a shame because I want there to be something like an Inuyasha for this generation of kids. Maybe that's, maybe that's a good question. What, what do you think would cause a bigger splash if it aired on television? Uh, Sailor Moon Crystal or Inuyasha the Final Act? Sailor Moon Crystal, obviously. I think at this point, Inuyasha the Final Act, everybody who wanted to see it has already gone and seen it, in one form or another. <laughs> Except for us. Well, may- maybe we're weird, <laughs> but my stance is, is that, you know, I can't really be bothered to to track that show down. I, I don't want to pay for it. I don't want to go through the trouble of pirating it or trying to get a get a U.S. stream working because it is not streaming in That's Canada. No- that, that is something I really can't stand. Um, but if it were broadcasting on television, I'd watch it every week for sure. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of other people would as well. Um, or even the original Inuyasha. I, and the same goes for Dragon Ball Z and Sailor Moon. I, I would make the argument that if any broadcaster who picked any of those three shows up, you just kind of read the whole back catalog in perpetuity or, or marathoned it a lot. I, I, I mean, I think they could pick up a loyal audience that could support a network and, you know, especially with, in the current kind of pick and pay environment that we're, that we're, uh, gravitating towards as well can't come soon enough man can't come soon enough actually one example of of american an american equivalent in yasha's popularity the some of the current tsunami shows like akame got kill kill la kill parasite these are getting really good ratings yeah and there's you know you mentioned before how cowboy bebop was so similar to many of the shows that were airing on both tsunami and adult swim action at the time these shows are all very yeah. distinct from each other. <laughs> these show these shows on Toonami get good ratings now. It's like we can expect mm-hmm. we can expect Toonami to do well in the demographics compared to reruns or sports. Do do you guys think that, you know, even if a station had no intention of airing anime, do you think Inuyasha is some it, it it could get like kind of a nostalgic or be a nostalgic draw for people in the way I kind of characterize it? Oh, definitely. I, Especially for my generation, but I still talk to my friends, like, even up until now when we're in our mid-twenties, and we're just a bunch of jaded old millennials. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say millennials. We were all mostly born in 95, 94. I don't know if that counts. That's millennial. We're, we're all millennials, oh, actually. Oh, dear God. Millennial is... A- anyone born between 1981 and 2001 is millennial. Oh, God. I'm the very thing that I hate, then. Um, 
Yeah, definitely. We still remember the days of Inuyasha, and we were like, that's when YTV was at its best, man. You had Bionics and DBZ and all that, and Inuyasha, yeah. So I think there would be a nostalgic draw, definitely. But I don't know if it would be enough to, to warrant YTV actually going through the trouble of licensing it again. I don't think we'd see it on YTV, honestly, no, but, I, you know, another, like some other broadcaster or... Adult Swim Canada? Oh, that's just which, that's, that's a pipe dream, <laughs> let's be honest. I'm just pulling smoke out my ass at this point. I, I kind of feel that in terms of anime, the way it aired in 2003 was anime at its best on YTV. Bionics was mostly awesome, and I think the embarrassment of riches around 2006 or so was unprecedented. And again, amazing in certain ways, but they really nailed it in September 2003. They totally nailed it. There, there was a there was a kind of rawness yeah. to the way the way it was uh, the show was thrown out into the wild that I think in itself made it special. Did it always air with disclaimers uh, in 2003? It did. That was yes. the first time I ever saw one of those. In all honesty, in fact, I think that was actually the first time YTV ever used disclaimers for anything. Uh, except I, I don't I don't know if they did during Buffy. At any point. No, well, maybe during they, that. No, they didn't. Maybe. They didn't air the during Buffy's space. Wow, did. YTV was badass back in the day. They didn't give a crap. What I happened? Well, Buffy just got really dark really fast, and they did have to. They did have to air one of the late season six episodes after Watershed. They just yeah, it was it. seeing red, wasn't it? Yeah, they just had to move yeah. it thirty minutes, so that all the all the uncomfortable stuff aired after Watershed. But that's all they did because I think. I think they were very proud of airing Buffy, so they didn't want to damage their identity there. That, that said, it, it it says a lot about the perception of animation when something like Buffy is aired without a disclaimer, but they felt it necessary to place a disclaimer on, on Inuyasha. And I think it was necessary. Like, the show does have a teenage action-adventure vibe that the 6 to 11 kids would pick up on, so... Airing it with a disclaimer, with the, with the knowledge that six to eleven year olds were watching, that's probably why they did it. Like with Buffy, you can be pretty sure no six to eleven year olds are going to watch the last two seasons of Buffy. I, I mean, did. Watch yeah. The last two seasons of Buffy, but that's another story. Yeah. What, one angle that really interested me that I was hoping to explore more on the show. In fact, w one of the people I originally wanted on this episode was uh, a mother I knew personally who, for her and her family. I mean, Inuyasha was, was family viewing for them. They watched it together. And I'm I'm kind of curious as to how unique that experience was. It doesn't seem like that would be common for, say, you know, an adult, anything airing on Adult Swim. But anything airing on YTV, even if it is, you know, catering to an older audience, sort of invites that openness from a, from, from a family perspective. Yeah. Well, pre-Watershed, it definitely could. I tried the family. We tried the family viewing with Inuyasha. I mean, I had three younger brothers, so eventually I'd probably watching Inuyasha with one, at least one brother. And if I was upstairs, I'd be watching it with my parent. Either my mom or my dad would have been watching it. Um, I knew that my parents wouldn't be able to jive with the show. The dub, <laughs> again, it's too unnaturalistic for for I think a parent to jive with, and the plot. The plot would have been a total fog. What when my when my mother was in the room, you could see it through her eyes. I was old enough <laughs> that I could literally watch the show through her eyes because because you know it's like when you're watching a movie you really like with with a significant other or something, and you know your significant other so well that you're seeing it through their eyes. Overall, I think we can agree that 
even if you know its actual significance was kind of encapsulated in a very brief period inuyasha definitely had an important impact do, do you guys have any other thoughts on like the show's legacy do you think do you think that that's enough to kind of keep its legacy going or do you think it's just gonna fall even more to the wayside even, even while something like sailor moon seems to keep growing in uh in prestige until our generation croaks i don't think so i think it'll always be something of a memory at least for us a very vivid memory for us. I think yeah. legacy in terms of the story and the characters, that's where you get into something where, no, it's not as memorable as Sailor Moon because Sailor Moon is about five teenage girls fighting fighting monsters once a week. That's what the show is. Inuyasha is a hodgepodge of various characters. It's not male action-focused like Dragon Ball or female or female team focused like Sailor Moon. So there's no... What are we relating to here? Nobody could tell you what the show was in one sentence. Yeah, S- Sailor Moon is like... yeah, It's very easily digestible. With Inuyasha, you have this sort of convoluted mess of characters and motifs that are kind of perpetually moving in circles. And, you know, I, I think it's it's safe to say it's the, the it's more, you know, the context, the time and place impression that it made is probably more important than the content itself. Uh, if it if, if it ever does come back on the air, and I hope it does in some context, it'll 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 be interesting to see how it's received. Because I know it still does well when it pops up on Adult Swim. Hard to say in Canada because, like, I have been trying to <laughs> to to hammer on throughout this this show. It's it's different, and it's also not like a show like Naruto, where Naruto doesn't have doesn't have anything lash on to mostly clash onto either, but basically ninjas. To to me, Naruto's popularity is inexplicable. I don't understand ninjas. it at all. That's it. It's that's yeah. That's show. all there. That's, I mean, ninjas are cool, like, but they only go so far. There's nothing really that makes the characters in that show more compelling than in m- most of its peer shows. I don't get it, man. For a long-running anime show, and this is the ultimate compliment I can pay it for something that was 167 episodes in its first run. Inuyasha at least try tries to be. A story-based fantasy with individual characters. I don't even know if the show is, su- is a success. I don't even know if I objectively like the show. I certainly like I certainly like watching it on white TV. That's not exactly the same thing, but its ambition for a long-running shonen show is really special. I think there's there's something ma- there was something magic about Inuyasha. I just can't put my finger on it, but there was something magic about that show. Exactly. Back then. I even have the Inuyasha PS1 fighting game. That's how much I've Oh, my God. Show. Oh, my God. It's sitting there on my rack of PS1 games as I look to my <laughs> right right now. It's right below the Beyblade PS1 game. That's kind of ironic. Now that I think about it. That gives me nostalgic memories, too. <laughs> um, because my brother played that game in a hotel room once. So, again, nostalgic. Well, okay. I think that just about wraps us up. Uh, so thanks a lot, guys. It was a, it was a pleasure having you on today. Thank you, Jesse. Pleasure's all mine. Ben and Noah for coming on the show. Theme song is by Ultra Clystron. You can find the stuff at ultraclystron.com. Follow me on Twitter at ZonNCanada or email ZonNCanada at gmail.com. And please subscribe on iTunes. See you again. Please.